Okay, the scripture this morning is Romans 13, 11 through 14. It's on page 948. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. All right, what a great verse for the 9 a.m. Wake up. <laughs> My name's Brandon. If I have not had the chance to meet you, I am uh, the founding pastor of SOMA. Uh, my wife and I had the great privilege to start uh, this church along with uh, Trevor and a few others in our uh, home. Uh, pastor Kent was one of those uh, almost seven years ago this December. And so it's fun to be here. I serve as the Midtown Congregational Pastor now, so I don't get to get down here as much. But um, glad to be with you this morning. Before we get started in this uh, teaching in Romans, I want to just take a moment. Um, the Bible says that we, show, we should show honor to those uh, who deserve it. And I want to take a moment just to recognize and thank those who uh, are serving us this morning. Uh, I know, especially on a morning like this, I mean, it's just like take your breath away to walk out on a, on a just ridiculously cold morning uh, when it's 30 degrees. And to get here early while it's still dark and to set up, uh, and so I want to thank uh, just a few people. D, uh, who's serving this morning. Again, most of these folks um, on staff uh, have full-time jobs doing other things. And uh, then they put their uh, superhero capes on on Sunday morning, and they also serve you guys. And so D, with our music. Uh, Tayshawn uh, in the back, who does handles all of our operations, setup, logistics, all the little things that go in. I mean, again, working at the hospital and then uh, showing up here on Sunday morning to make sure that uh, all these details come together, which we often don't think about and we miss and so super thankful uh, his wife's at home as a stay-at-home mom, uh, as a single mom basically this morning with the kids. And so uh, thankful for Tayshawn, David, and Kendall. Thank you guys for leading us in liturgy. Uh, again, it seems easy just to get up here and, and read uh, a script, but there's preparation and prayer that goes into leading that liturgy. And I think about um, David was a guy that I met, uh, I think it was almost six years ago. We had our first meeting at the Speakeasy uh, Prohibition style, like up there in Broderpool. And uh, David's just like this, uh, you know, squeaky clean, uh, you know, like 22-year-old. And he's like, I, you know, I want to lead at Soma. I want to be a leader. And, and uh, it's just neat to see now you married and uh, you and Kendall just leading in such a fantastic way uh, as deacons here at downtown. Uh, Pastor Phil, obviously, uh, super grateful for you and Francoise and your stabilizing presence down here. And then uh, I want to just, if you served this morning, would you just throw your hands up? Again, uh, some of you are greeters. Some of you uh, kids, workers are not able to throw their hands. Yeah, thank, thank you guys so much for getting here early. We want to honor you uh, in, in, in doing what uh, most of us didn't want to do and obviously didn't do this morning, which is to get up and to uh, lay your lives down. I think of the end of uh, Paul's letters, there's always the section that we usually skip over to go to the next letter. Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, and he lists all those weird names. 
Um, those are the, that's Paul kind of showing honor, right? He's just saying, thank you for opening up your home. Thank you for op- opening up your life. Thank you for risking your, your vitality, your energy, your resources to, to advance the gospel. And so we thank you uh, to those of you who do that. And I want to encourage you, if you're not uh, getting to share in participating as an owner of this body, our hope is that you would see what happens here on Sunday morning, not as a consumer event, where you show up to, to receive uh, the religious goods and services that the providers give to you, but rather you would see yourself as part of this family, that you would participate as an owner, that you would feel like a stakeholder in what happens. And one of the ways that we do that is just through serving, by showing up and, uh, and being friendly. And, and again, life is rarely uh, these big, extraordinary experiences. Life is really just a bunch of small moments that are pulled together into a life. And so I would ask you, as you think about Sunday, we have 52 moments a year um, in which we are saying yes or no to a certain kind of life, right? And so what would it look like for us to, to be servants and to see those as opportunities not to show up to be served, but rather to serve? Um, we're going to be uh, here in Romans 13, but really skipping all the way around uh, the Bible today. Um, I'm a little bit bummed. I had a beautiful slide deck that I invested a lot of time and energy uh, creating, only to find out that we do not have PowerPoint at Soma Downtown. So we're going to remedy that uh, tomorrow. We are going to buy uh, PowerPoint, right? Because uh, you guys have done great financially, and we're going to spend the 30 bucks about PowerPoint or whatever it is. Uh, but so, you, so I have a slide deck, but the thing's really small, and it doesn't look anything like what I created. But that's okay, right? Like the church is done without PowerPoint for centuries. Uh, but we've been in a series this fall. If you're new or it's been a couple weeks, you've been at some weddings uh, and, uh, you know, uh, on a kayak somewhere, you know, down near Bloomington for the last couple weeks. Um, we've been talking about what we call our annual priority, which is spiritual formation. And we have this little tagline for this that is a way for us to kind of remember this together in terms of what it looks like to be an apprentice of Jesus, right? That is our, our primary passion as a church. Jesus said, go and make apprentices uh, of me, right? Teaching them to observe uh, and obey all that I've commanded you, right? Discipleship. This is the heart of the vision, or should be the heart of the vision of a church, is to form uh, disciples. And so spiritual formation, we've said, is practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And we're spending all fall kind of unpacking this statement, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. The first half of the series, uh, we kind of focused on the why of spiritual formation and the what of spiritual formation. And so that's practicing the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus, uh, learning to be with Jesus, learning to become like Jesus, and learning to do, do what Jesus did, right? Um, that's the why and the what. And this week, um, we're going to begin to shift gears to the how of spiritual formation. It often feels like this very mysterious, mystical process. How do we actually practice the way of Jesus? What does it look like to have a, a process, a framework for understanding the how? And, and yes, it is mysterious. It is supernatural. But God often uses very natural, ordinary, everyday experiences and processes to make us like Jesus. And so um, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking this statement. I'm going to want to throw it up on the screen. Uh, that discipleship is a partnership with God. Discipleship or apprenticeship or spiritual formation is a partnership with God. It involves both God's work and our work, right? So Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 through 13, work out your salvation, Paul says to the church at Philippi, with fear and trembling. So you work, you sweat, right? We talked about training, the difference between training, I don't know if you guys use this analogy here, 
training and trying. We're not saying, Paul's not saying try harder, right? He's saying train yourself for godliness. Work it out, right? Use the, the idea of work is take the energy and harness the energy that has been placed inside of you. But as you do that, remember, it is God who works in you, who uh, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So God is working in you, and as he works in you, we are to cooperate, collaborate, and this is some sweet collaboration, right? We are to collaborate with God, God being the primary worker, working in us and empowering us to work out our salvation, to work out of us what God is working into us, right? So uh, the analogy I used with Midtown last week, um, just to make sure that we're clear, our partnership, this is not like a business partnership. This is not spiritual formation LLC, and we're equal partners with God, okay? Uh, the, the analogy I've used is uh, I have four kids, uh, 12, uh, almost 11, 9, and almost 7. Yes, it's ex- exhausting as it sounds. Uh, and my kids will oftentimes want to cook dinner. Now, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not a cook, just admittedly not a chef. I, I'm horrible. But one thing I do well, I, matter of fact, I do it amazing is brunch, okay? I can do and make killer brunch. And when I'm making brunch on Saturdays, or oftentimes we do brinner, uh, eat breakfast for dinner around the house, uh, my kids want to jump in and they want to cook with dad. Now, basically what that means when a kid asks to cook with dad is, I want to make a huge mess and I want it to not taste uh, very good, okay? So they get involved in the process and, the, and it takes twice as long and they're throwing flour everywhere and there's milk being spilled and they want to crack the eggs and they end up cracking the egg all over the counter. And that's cool, right? That's part of teaching a kid to grow up. And so um, when my kids cook, I am, I am ultimately the chef, right? I purchase the groceries. I have the recipe. I oversee and over, uh, superintend the process. And ultimately, I am the one that is the cook, that is the chef. And they get invited in. But it's through this process of collaboration that they are hopefully learning like what it looks like to become the kind of person who could brunch for themselves and hopefully for their families one day. That's a kind of an, a little bit of analogy of what God is doing. God is the chef, right? In this partnership, he is the one with all of the resources of heaven. We're going to talk about next week what God is doing uh, and God's role in transformation from Ephesians chapter 1. Like, he has scoured the heavenly places and he has poured out his blessings on us. He is the chef. From beginning to end, salvation is God's work, Right? But he invites us in, and as we learn to collaborate with him, now we're going to crack a few eggshells on the counter. We're going to throw some flour all over the kitchen. But in the end, we're learning to become the kind of people who practice the way of Jesus as Jesus himself taught us so that we learn to live in our everyday ordinary lives and do and think and feel and speak as if Jesus would if he were here with us. Because that's the reality the New Testament says is true. God is in us, working through us, to do what he would do as if he were here. So that's the idea of partnership. And when we get off track, oftentimes, we put too much weight on one side or the other, right? It's, it's all God, or it's all me. Um, uh, I didn't grow up in church, but when I started going to church, uh, I found it was just a, a bizarre place as a teenager. Um, they used weird language, and they had all these little, like, bumper sticker theological statements. Like, you ever heard, like, somebody say, God is my co-pilot? Uh, you know, they would say weird things like, just let go and let God, which usually means I don't want to do the hard work, so I'll just blame it on God, you know? 
Um, and, and that's not exactly what we see in the New Testament. It's not just let go and let God. It's work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God works in you. And so it's not all God. God invites us to participate. Matter of fact, God will not do it without us. He refuses to do that. But it's also not just us. And oftentimes the work of transformation, we get so focused on our role, we get our head down, and and transformation can become all about self-discovery and and self-improvement and and, and, and self-awareness. And so it's a both-and partnership. Wow, there there it goes. You were right, David. All right, I will take that other one. Let's put this over here. I thought you were kind of exaggerating. Yeah, exactly. All right. Try that again. So, next week, you're going to be in Ephesians 1 talking about God's role in transformation and God as the chef, right? One of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, This week, I want us to to think about um, uh, how we connect to what God's doing. So God is always present. He's always active, right? Even when we don't see God at work, he is always working and active in his engagement with us. But um, one of the primary themes of the New Testament, for sure, and really of the Bible, um, is that sometimes we're disconnected from the work that God's doing around us. It's easy to fall asleep. Right? I mean, again, as I was studying it this week, I was, I was just amazed at how many times. There's a, a little-known uh, book that was written in 1963 by a German scholar um, called Spiritual Wakefulness in the New Testament. And this uh, scholar basically says one of the recurring themes throughout the Bible and in the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus and in the teachings of Paul and Peter, is this idea of falling asleep, that we often fall asleep on God. God is at work, and he is active, but we fall asleep. Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, The Holy Longing, says this, The struggle to experience God is not so much one of God's presence or absence as it is one of the presence or absence of God in our awareness. God is always present, but we are not always present to God. God is always present, but we often are not present to God, right? The, the, the imagery of uh, Revelation pictures God as He's at the door and he's knocking, and it's as if we've fallen asleep, right? We've got the air conditioning turned up, we're in our bedrooms, we've got the music playing, and God is knocking, and there's nobody home. Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk and mystic, said it this way, We're all like pilots of fog-bound steamers, peering into the gloom in front of us, listening for the sounds of other ships, and we can only reach our harbor if we keep alert. The spiritual life then is then, first of all, a matter of keeping awake. The spiritual life is then, first of all, a matter of keeping awake. This uh, word here that we see in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, uh, when Paul says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This verb here for asleep is used 22 times in the New Testament, often in reference to physical sleep, but, um, but also used of a sp- kind of a spiritual lethargy and a spiritual indifference. And you'll see those two uses uh, kind of even uh, come together in certain places. And so I want us to just a- answer two questions this morning in our time together. 
um, I want to talk about how we fall asleep. So I want us to look at uh, the question, how do we actually fall asleep? Because I think most of us in the room are like, uh, I'm here, I'm awake. Uh, maybe some, some of you have already fallen asleep since I've started talking. Uh, and God bless you. Maybe you just, you've worked uh, a lot, a hard week, and so don't feel bad about falling asleep on me. Uh, I know that you're tired, and uh, I am not uh, as able as Kent to keep your attention with uh, humorous stories and references to pop culture, okay? But um, we all fall asleep, and so I want to look at different ways that we fall asleep, and then I want us to ask the question, how do we practice wakefulness? This is the idea that we want to talk about today, is um, the concept of wakefulness. How do we actually practice wakefulness? So how do we fall asleep first? Uh, There's lots of ways that we can fall asleep, right? And I want to talk primarily about one that I think uh, is uh, really kind of an epidemic in, in our day, although it's, it's something that people have been writing about for centuries, certainly people were even beginning to talk about uh, at the dawning of the 18th century and the 19th century and certainly the 20th century. Um, but one of the ways we can fall asleep, there's, there's four things at least that I see in my own life as I think about times in my life when I've just been sleepwalking, right? I'm, I'm a kid who grew up uh, as an avid sleepwalker, right? And my poor oldest son has inherited this gene from me. Uh, my mother would oftentimes come into my room and find me up on my bed, down in the catcher's position, playing baseball, uh, uh, wa- trying to walk out the front door. We had to have multiple deadlocks, deadbolt locks on our front door because I would try to get outside. And my poor son has the same uh, quality. And so I oftentimes see this in my own life, not just physically uh, or uh, in uh, REM sleep patterns, but spiritually and emotionally and mentally as well. And one of the primary culprit, culprits for me is distraction. One of the ways that we fall asleep is we get distracted, right? The world is conspiring to distract us from being awake, from staying awake to what's ultimately most true. I think about the story of, uh, in the New Testament of Mary and Martha. Remember that story where, uh, where Mar- Martha is busy serving, and Jesus kind of calls her. I think we have this scripture up here, Jordan. Uh, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha, who would become uh, Mary Martha, and their brother Lazarus were very close friends. They were patrons of Jesus' ministry. Many people believe they were wealthy uh, business folks or had some kind of an inheritance. They often hosted gatherings uh, for the early church in their home. Uh, but, but it says that Martha was distracted with much serving, doing good things, right? But distracted. She wasn't present. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now, if you're familiar with Enneagram, Martha's a classic Enneagram too, okay? So she's worried about meeting others' needs and is uh, embittered. Uh, I think Richard Rohr says there's nothing. Uh, hell hath no fury like a two scorned. Uh, if, if you don't know what Enneagram is, then just God bless you, um, but we're kind of into that, Soma. Uh, so she's frustrated because her sister is uh, not helping her. Tell her then to help me. But Jesus answered her, Martha, Martha, right? This could be the soundtrack for some of our lives, like so how much millennial uh, angst that we, we, we experience and talk about and feel. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. We get distracted, right? Oftentimes, um, we don't even realize we're getting distracted. Uh, We have distractions inside of us. I think of the old hymns that would say, uh, our hearts are prone to wonder, right? Uh, I did a little experiment. I am the worst at attention span. I have one of the lowest attention spans, and I don't know, I've never been diagnosed with anything, but I have a really hard time 
focusing for long periods of time. And so knowing that I was going to preach this uh, sermon to y'all, I was driving down from Broderville, right? So it's like 18 minutes to get down here from my house. And, um, and I was trying to just see how long I could pay attention without my mind wandering. And so I hit like every single stoplight, which is super frustrating, coming down uh, Keystone on uh, Sunday morning. And it was like literally every 10 seconds, I, my mind began to wander and begin to like trail off. It was like Alice in Wonderland, right? Like I was down the rabbit hole and things were just getting weird. And, uh, and then I would bring my mind back and realize I'm thinking about not being distracted and I'm getting distracted by this distraction. Have you ever had this experience? So there's things inside of us that are going on like neurobiologically that, that distract us. Um, there's an interesting, um, and there's obviously things that are happening around us as well. Uh, there's an interesting field of study right now, and if you're in education, you're probably aware uh, of this for sure, um, on the science of attention. If you're in marketing, certainly you're dialed into this reality. The science of attention. How does attention work in uh, the human brain? Daniel Goleman uh, wrote a great book called Focus, and he talks about uh, the brain, and he says, we basically spend about 50%, research has shown, we spend about 50% of our waking hours on autopilot. And this is actually the, the way that the brain is wired. Your brain cannot hold everything in attention at once. As a matter of fact, if it did, you would die or go crazy, right? Like you can't, the, the idea of mindfulness, of being in the moment, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness in, in therapeutic environments uh, and psychology, but you can't hold everything. Your brain has a filter, and basically uh, your brain tries to economize energy all the time. Um, and one of the ways it does that is by paying the least amount of attention possible to whatever you're doing in the moment, right? That's what allows your brain to rest and for you to be fully functioning as a human being. And that's why attention, especially concentrated attention, actually takes a lot of effort to sustain. We exhaust our attention and we need to rest, and so we tune out. Now, marketers have learned that they can actually commoditize our attention. They can actually make money off of our tendency to be distracted. And there are millions and millions and millions of dollars being spent every year to capture and to keep your attention, right? Uh, one of the most profound books that I came across in studying this uh, was by a guy named Ben Parr. He wrote a book called Captivology. And he talks about this, uh, this science of attention. And, uh, and he says, basically, there's all kinds of attention triggers that marketers are paying attention to, uh, cues and symbols and uh, stories and things, but, but he, he, he uh, uses this analogy, this metaphor of building a fire. Uh, he says attention starts with a spark, right, with an ignition. And this is kind of like capturing your immediate attention. This is uh, a text that comes through. This is an email that pops up, an alert that pops up. This is a billboard. This is, you know, all kinds of ways that people try to grab your immediate attention and, and draw you into something, okay? Then that ignition moves to kindling, and that's kind of like t to converting that uh, immediate attention to a short-term attention to keep your focus for a little bit longer. And then that kindling eventually becomes a bonfire. Think of the way that some of you are obsessed with Apple, right? Like you are in the bonfire uh, of Apple and you are, you are sitting by the fire enjoying its warmth and you will not, not purchase an Apple product maybe because they have captivated your imagination. One author uh, likened marketing, uh, and he is a marketer and advertiser, so I'm not throwing shade on marketing. I'm a marketing undergrad. Uh, but one, uh, one author called it the fracking of the modern attention. And think about that analogy. The fracking of modern attention. Fracking is like, you know, 
drilling and mining deep down into reservoirs of shale that were previously uh, unable to be accessed, and they get down in there, and there's horizontal fracking happening, and they're able to now reach and harvest new oil and gas that could not previously be reached. That is what is happening to you all the time. Your mind, your attention is being fracked, right? And it is, it is a conspiracy. And so we have all kinds of reasons to be distracted, probably more than any other person in human history, any other people group in human history. We are a distracted people. And it, and it impacts our ability to be present. I mean, that's the end of the day. It impacts our ability to be present because we can't focus. We can't concentrate. We can't hold our attention on anyone or anything. I mean, I think about how many times my kids walk into the, like last night, we're hanging out as a family, um, and we just had a bunch of people over and enjoyed each other's company for a little while, and the kids come in, and they're going, mom, dad, mom, dad, and what are we doing? We're over there, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, not paying attention, right? Not doing the basics of parenting, because we're distracted, Again, Ronald Rollheiser, who is one of my favorites in in diagnosing this condition we find ourselves in, says this. uh, Narcissism accounts for our heartaches, pragmatism for our headaches, and restlessness for our insomnia. And constancy of all three together account for the fact that we are so habitually self-absorbed by heartaches, headaches, and greed for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside of and around us. It is not that we have anything against God, the depth and God, depth and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall. This is outdated. And the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual life. I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I want to grow, and yet I can't pay attention for more than 30 seconds. Distraction. The second thing, we'll move quickly through these, is disappointment, right? We sometimes fall asleep because we get disappointed with life, right? And the only way we can kind of cope with that disappointment is to fall asleep, to numb ourselves against the pain, I think of the story of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, right? Luke chapter 22, verse 45. Jesus came out and went as was his custom. He was a man who loved and craved solitude and time alone with his father to be fully present with God. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What temptation is he talking about? Pornography, uh, you know, addiction. What's he talking about? What's the temptation? Uh, When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. But why? For sorrow. They were so torn up. They were so sorrowful, right? Think about things in our lives that um, disappoint us, the sorrow that can overwhelm us and make us fall asleep, right? Think about the pain that we deal with. We think about trauma. We think about disillusionment, right, of expectations that we had for how our life was supposed to work, right? When you were uh, 18 and, and the world was in front of you and you were excited about Jesus and you were excited about the mission of God and you were excited about the city and you were excited about this neighborhood and you were excited about this church and you were excited about your friends and then you, you grow up and you live a little bit of life and you get hurt and people betray you, 
they betray your trust, they let you down, they disappoint you. Things happen that you didn't anticipate happening. And all of a sudden you, you're like, how did I get here? Right? It's like, you know, you get in your car sometimes and you drive to work and you have no idea how you got there. Right? That's a scary thing, right? That's, that's again, what happens in our brains. The same thing can happen with disappointment and disillusionment, right? You have your first kid, you get married, you get divorced, right? Like somebody close to you dies. All of that pain can turn into sorrow and bitterness and despair. One of the primary reasons we fall asleep is just because of despair. It's been said that we make uh, some of our worst decisions. There's a great acronym that you do well probably to memorize. It's called HALT. We make some of our worst decisions when we are hungry, when we are angry, when we are lonely, and we reti- when we are tired. Think about how many of your greatest regrets have happened when you were hungry, you were angry, you were lonely, or you were tired. Right? Disappointment can help us, can, can lead to us falling asleep. Richard Rohr uh, says this, all great spirituality <clears throat> is about what we do with our pain. If we do not transform our pain, we will transmit it in some form. Third thing is duty, and this kind of goes hand in hand with what we talked about a little bit earlier with uh, Martha and Mary. Uh, Matthew 15, Jesus is always calling out the, uh, the Pharisees uh, for being blind. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, right? You're doing religious things. You're doing good things, having Bible studies, reading the scriptures. You search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We do good religious things, but there's no life in them, right? And we get distracted by duty. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon that he preached, he was a Baptist preacher of a megachurch in London back in the 19th century, and preaching on this passage in Romans 13, here's what he says. It is very possible to appear very devout when indeed you are very sleepy. It is very possible to sing hymns when you are not awake to the sense. Yes, and it is very probable that you will betray your absence of mind by sitting down at the last verse— although there is going to be a chorus afterwards. You know it's coming, but your part of the worship is performed so mechanically. Is this not liturgy, like what we can do with liturgy, right? David's coming up for confession. Okay, check the box. Check the box. Okay, now we're going to pass the peace. Now we're going to have assurance. Now we're going to sing another song, right? Like you can get so mechanical, he says, that you drop down in your pew as a matter of habit. It is very easy to hear sermons and be asleep all the while, at least with one ear open and one eye but the major part of the faculties of the soul still steeped in slumber. And you can keep on teaching, pay your religious contributions punctually, maintain the habit of family prayer, and even your private devotions may not be wholly neglected, and yet you may be walking in your sleep. All these duties may be done with a sort of sleepwalking life and action, and not at all with the life of a thoroughly wakeful man. The last thing we see is just straight-up disobedience, right? Often when we're asleep, we just fall into patterns of disobedience, right? And that's what he talks about here when he's talking about the works of the night, right? Uh, Orgies, some of you probably didn't know this in your Bible, uh, drunkenness, sexual morality, quarreling, jealousy. These are all, um, the Bible compares these works of darkness to like a drunken stupor that we can kind of find ourselves in. And then we uh, begin to numb, we begin to hide, we begin to blame, we rationalize. So distraction, disobedience, disappointment, and duty. These are all ways that we can fall asleep. And I don't know if you see yourself in those, uh, those portraits, right? 
And where do you find yourself? Maybe it's some combination of all of those things. Maybe you are distracted. Maybe you find yourself in a season of just straight-up disobedience. Like, I'm doing the wrong thing, and I don't care. Like, I don't care. Maybe for you, it is more of a season of disappointment, or uh, you're involved and wrapped up and engaged in the duties of religion, but there's no real vitality and passion in life. It's a good opportunity for self-reflection to say, how am I maybe here consciously awake but spiritually asleep? Second question uh, here is, how do we then practice wakefulness? Jesus says, and Paul invites us to wake up, right? This invitation to wakefulness. It is a central theme in the Bible, uh, in the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul. Let me give you a couple places where we see this. Matthew 24, 42, Jesus says to the disciples, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Luke chapter 12. Stay dressed for action. I love this language. Keep your lamps burning, right? Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In Revelation chapter 3, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The, the idea of wakefulness is being awake to what's ultimate reality, being awake to what's ultimately true, right? Which really, to, to use Bible language, is to say, to be awake to the presence of God, to be awake to the presence of those around you, to see in them the face of God and the image of God, uh, to be awake to yourself and what God's doing in your own life. Uh, a simple way to say it would be wakefulness is being fully present to God, fully present to others, and fully present to myself. Because how often are we asleep to our own reality? Fully present to God. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? The ongoing work and conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to wake us up, is to illuminate our minds and our hearts and our bodies to the reality, to reorient us out of kind of the grind and the like, you know, to get the kind of blinders off of us that we can get on ourselves as we go through the motions, we wake up, we get into our routines, <clears throat> we live everyday life with a sense of hopelessness and despair, or just a, a sense of like settled resignation that like maybe this is the best that there can be. And so we just kind of settle for mediocre. And the Bible says, wake up. The Bible says to the church, wake up. This isn't just something that's for you. This is something that is for us. Like, how often are we purveyors of sleepiness in the church? Like, pastors and churches work hard to, pe- pe- to keep people asleep to ultimate reality. I, I love the words of uh, Henri Nouwen. He says, but our task, speaking to pastors, is the opposite of distraction. Our task is to help people concentrate on the real, but often hidden event of God's active presence in their lives. Hence the question that we must guide all organizing activity in a parish or a church is not how to keep people busy. Empty leaders pay attention. Discipleship leaders pay attention. Hospitality leaders pay attention. Not to keep people busy, but 
how to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God who speaks inside. Wake up. What does it look like to live a life that's awake? Let me just give you a couple of words to think about. One primary and a couple secondary. To move from distraction towards wakefulness is a movement first from distraction to attention. It's learning to live an attentive life, right? To pay attention is, again, a big command in the Bible. You'll see it in places like Isaiah uh, 51 and 52 and, and 57, which a lot of people think is the backdrop here for Paul's words in Romans 13. You'll see it in the book of Hebrews. Pay attention. Paul says again here in Romans 13, you know the time. Paul's saying, pay attention to the time. And, and this word time here that Paul uses is not the word that we use for chronological time. There's two words for time in the New Testament. One is chronos and the other is kairos. Chronos is chronological time. Paul's not saying, like, what time is it? Okay, it's 11, uh, 12. No, he's saying, uh, what time is it? You know the time. You know the kairos. The, the idea of kairos is an existential time of opportunity, a turning point, right? It is a turning point. Uh, Jesus is always kind of saying, like, uh, my time has not come. My, my hour is not here, right? He's talking about these turning points where God is doing things in our lives, and he's trying to get our attention to wake us up. You know the time. God is at work. He is active. He is present. Pay attention. Now, what's cool about attentiveness is that we're not alone in this work. It's really returning the favor to God. Psalm chapter 8, there's a really interesting verse in Psalm 8 uh, where the psalmist says, when I consider the heavens and the handiwork of God, when I consider the sun and the moon and the stars and all that God's doing, what is man that you are mindful of him. That is a fascinating passage. God has you and I in his mind and on his heart at all times. God is paying attention to you. God, you have God's full attention. I mean, all the things that God could be doing in the universe, he is mindful of you. He is paying attention to you. And so attention is learning to turn our gaze back to the one who has his gaze set on us. It is learning to be present to God as he is always at every moment present to every fiber of our consciousness, every fiber of our being. So important to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. What controls your attention controls your life. What controls your attention controls your life. What does it look like to live an attentive life? Leighton Ford, in his book by that name, The Attentive Life, says this. Attentiveness means respecting, attending to, waiting on, looking at, and listening to the other. The persons and things that we encounter. For what they are in themselves, not what we can make of them. What they are in themselves, not what we'd like to make them. Idealization can be the enemy of attentiveness, what I'd like for life to be versus the reality of what life actually is, right? No, you pick it up what I'm putting down? What I'd like it to be versus what it actually is. This is an ancient spiritual discipline, right? The way that ancient writers used to talk about this um, really comes from the story of Moses and the burning bush. They, they called it turning aside. It's the, it's the discipline of turning aside or, or paying attention to 
the ordinary circumstances of lives and beginning to look for the active, engaging presence of God. Um, uh, Ruth Haley Barton, one of her great books called Strengthening the Soul of Leadership, describes this um, where Moses is confronted with the burning bush. Remember the story in Exodus? And it says, I'm, he says, I must turn aside and see what's happening here. It, it's not going by. Moses could have passed by the burning bush and missed the entire Exodus. Here's what Ruth Haley Barton says to leaders. Learning to pay attention and knowing what to pay attention to is a key discipline for leaders, but one that rarely comes naturally to those of us who are barreling through life with our eyes fixed on a goal. One of the downsides of visionary leadership is that we can get our sights set on something that is so far out in the future that we miss what's going on in our life right now as it exists. We are blind to the bush that is burning in our own backyard and the wisdom that is contained within it. We squander the gift of this day as it is. These people, just as they are, the uniqueness and sweetness, even the bittersweetness, she says, of this particular place on the journey, just as it is, the voice of God calling to us in our own wilderness places. Are you One of the most beautiful poems I think that gets at this is one by Elizabeth Barrett Brown, and here's what she says. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Do you see what God is doing around you? Do you see what God is doing in you? He is always working. When we pay attention, we become aware. That's the second stage, awareness. We learn to embrace reality as it really is. As it is, not as I would like it to be. We become aware of what God's doing. We move out of a place of distortion, right? And into a place of seeing the world as it is, right? Descending from the heights of where we'd like it to be to the planes of where it actually is is and that is a bittersweet reality right it's bittersweet because when we come down from the clouds and we embrace reality and we pay attention to what god's doing there is this simultaneous bitter bitter and sweetness that's happening right the bitterness is oh my gosh things are worse than i hoped that they would be <laughs> I, i'm a much more i'm a much worse human being than i thought i was i'm not actually about the things that i say i don't really uh act in a way that's aligned with what i say are my truest beliefs we begin to see the ways that we're not aligned with the reality of God and how we run our businesses, how we uh, engage with our, our, our core relationships, right? We, we, we're blind to all of those things. And it can be very disheartening and discouraging to see ourselves as we are. When somebody holds up the mirror and says, hey, are you even here? Are you paying attention? Where are you? I don't know if you've ever come home from work and had your spouse, you're sitting at dinner, and they're just like, where are you're not here. That can be disconcerting. But there's a, another side to that. There's also a sweetness. Not only am I worse than I hoped, but God is better than I could have ever imagined. His grace continues to pursue me. He doesn't give up on me at my worst. Matter of fact, there's something in the heart of God that is attracted to how jacked up I am, right? That's the whole point of Ephesians 1, right? Like before the foundation of the world, God chose to set his love on me. Before I ever did the, the first 
thing, before I ever finished college, before I ever closed my first deal, before I ever passed my boards or failed my boards, it was in the heart of God to set his mind on me and to love me. That is an amazing reality. So, attention, awareness, which should lead us to a place of awe, right? A sense of gratitude. God, it's amazing what you're doing. It's amazing the ways that you are holding my universe together, even when I am distracted, even when I'm disobedient, even when I am dutifully doing things that have nothing to do with God himself. God, you are still here. I mean, uh, again, the backdrop here is Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, Isaiah, the prophet, says to the people of Israel, awake, 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 right? Put on strength. Look around you and see the salvation of God. And then he goes into this, this praise and this gratitude. He says, how beautiful on the feet, uh, or how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. How amazing is God's salvation? When we get up outside of ourselves, we begin to see that God is working. We can move from a place of bitterness and despair to a fundamental posture of gratitude. And I can, I can open my day and close my day and say, God, thank you. I mean, gratitude is the heart of Christian spirituality. And like, how little time do we spend just being grateful for the everyday common graces of God in our lives? The ways that he is keeping us from being the worst version of ourselves. And the way that God is committed to pushing us and pushing us and pushing us towards his grace. Romans chapter 1. The futility and darkness of human beings. The fundamental sin. They didn't give thanks to God. The posture of a heart that's been transformed by grace, that's awake and fully alive, is one that is grateful for God's active presence and learns to see in the everyday, ordinary stuff of life, God's presence in our lives. And then that leads us to a place of, hopefully, anticipation. Right? I mean, that's what this passage here in Romans 13 is all about. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The kingdom of God is breaking in. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, right? Not as just some act of legalism, but he's saying, look, you ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia? Like winter is almost over. Winter is almost over. The day is coming. Summer is not almost here now. It will be here again, right? And there will be an eternal summer. And he says, now pay attention. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is eager keeping of the lamps burning, right? It is a sense of anticipation of there is more coming. There is an ultimate reality that is more true than what I am experiencing right now, more true than my performance evaluation, more true than my boards, more true than my exams, more true than the struggles I'm experiencing with my kids and my spouse, more true than uh, this broken relationship with my parents or whatever. Like there is an ultimate reality and we learn to live with a sense of anticipation. I love Simone uh, Vey, who was a French writer. She says it like this, expectant waiting is the foundation of the spiritual life. Expectant waiting is the foundation of the spiritual life. Now what does it look like for us to live in that reality. We need to close because we're done with time and the kids are getting antsy. What does it look like for us to live with that expectant anticipation? The Bible talks over and over again about redeeming the time. I think this is one of the great opportunities, and we'll talk more about this in depth when we get to our series on prayer in just a few 
months, but watching and wakefulness um, is really tied to prayer in the New Testament. It's one of the primary ways that we learn to pay attention is the act of prayer. You could actually say, one lady, Emil Griffin, uh, says the essence of prayer is actually to give God our full attention. To give God our full attention. And to go, so to go back to our analogy from our marketing friend in captivology of ignition and, uh, and kindling and bonfire. One of the ways we get a bonfire going is through prayer, right? It's through just the simple act of paying attention to what God is doing in our everyday lives. I think of the kicks in the movie Inception, right? These prayers like a kick that wakes us up out of a dream state, right? It is paying attention to God. You could say sin in, in its essence is anything that distracts us from paying attention to God. And so prayer is that thing that brings us back to God. One of the resources the early church has given us for centuries, uh, it was actually invented by a man named Ignatius. Uh, it was called the Prayer of Examine. And it's an opportunity every single day just to start your day with five minutes of paying attention. God, what are you doing right now? God, I want to be thankful. I want to welcome you into my life. Holy Spirit, come and, and make me aware. Wake me up to your reality in my life. Thank you for all of these things that you are doing in my life. Here's how I see you working in my life. Thank you for waking me up this morning. Thank you for giving me this mind. Thank you for giving me this body. Thank you for giving me these relationships. And then at the end of the day, it's just stopping to pause. And to go, God, how have you been at work in my day? What's encouraged me today? Why? What's discouraged me? Why? Taking the time to pay attention. That attention leading to awareness, which leads to awe, which leads to anticipation. It's something as simple and ordinary and yet almost impossible at that. But that is the life that God is calling us to live. A prayerful, watchful, wakeful let me pray for us, and then we're going to set up communion and go and beg for God's help together as we seek to walk in wakefulness. Father, we thank you for your mercies, that they're new every single day. God, we pray today that you would wake us up out of our sleep. All of us, God, to some degree are sleepy. Some of us are physically sleepy uh, because we are living an over-busy and distracted and hurried life, and we need to embrace your call to sleep and define rest and to really trust you in the basic necessities of life. But all of us are spiritually sleepy, and we need to be awakened to your ultimate reality in our lives. So God, would you do what we cannot do? Would you wake us up? Would you give us a desire to know and to grow into the full knowledge of you? And God, would you use us as instruments in one another's lives, as, as, as uh, prods, right, to help wake one another up, to not allow one another to fall asleep? but to be attuned to what you're doing around us, to turn aside to the burning bushes that you place in our lives, starting with this one right here, communion. And God, may we step towards this, being fully present to you in this moment, fully present to one another, and fully present to ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name.